Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Franz Dance, I hope you had a fantastic Yantif. I am so excited to welcome you back with fresh energy, wishing you a good Kvittel, a good winter. I'd like to tell you that I am recruiting new ideas for new episodes. If you have a personal story you think would be great for this podcast, please do reach out. I love hearing from you. Not everyone will get featured on the show, but I would love to feature as many as possible. We are looking for more No More Silence guests. Also love to hear from an Israeli soldier who was at war who could speak in English. Regarding this episode... We had two sisters, our guests, recording next to each other, so I did my best to edit all the extra sounds out. And I'd like to tell you that there are so many topics covered on this Jewish Sensory podcast, such as babies. If you want to skip the babies part, just go straight to about minute 17, or now that we're bumping this up, so a few minutes after the intro, add whatever the intro is, plus 17 minutes. We cover upshurns, haircuts, and yarmulkes, being tznias in hot weather, uniform and sensory issues, and as well as yamim tovim, sensory tools for that, and mikvah for boys and men. There is also a link in the show notes for you to register for a closed session we will be doing at some point in the future on women, mikvah, and sensory and intimacy issues, intimacy and sensory. That will be a separate Zoom. However, there's one link for you to sign up to get further notified on these closed Zoom sessions. I would like to read a message I got from a listener, Abby Vishnavsky Marks. She reached out to me a couple of weeks ago because she had been catching up on the podcast and listening to the head covering series from last Hanukkah. And here is her comment. I'd like to read it out loud because it was worth mentioning specifically on the head covering series. We had one of the guests from today's show talking about head covering and sensory. I think it is important to note that although our vernacular is hair covering, I suggest you use the terminology of Kisu Roche head covering. The source for Kisu Roche is in Ketuvos. Hair covering has an entirely separate source in Asugya and Brachos that discusses what a man may see or hear while reciting Kriya Shema. Neither of these sugyos cites the other. Many fulfill Kisu Roche but don't cover their hair, the reason being that those individuals hold that the Sugya and Brachos is relative according to to societal norms, see the Ramah, aspects of Kisarosh are relative to the community, dot Yehudi, see the Rambam, but there is a basic level of head covering required for all, dot Moshe. It is clear from that sugya, however, that dot Moshe level of head covering hair may be exposed and with no specified portion of head that must be covered. For Limut Schut, for those that do not cover, see Rabbi Broid's article linked in the show notes. I think you should make an adjustment with your terminology regarding hair covering. Head covering is a significantly more inclusive term to include more individuals in your audience as well as fitting into the halachic vernacular of the commentators on the subject. I appreciate messages like these. Although I am not going to go back and redo the episodes we did for last Hanukkah, I would like to publicly recognize that these messages are so appreciated. And just to give you a background, no excuses, just explanation. I was releasing three episodes in one week, the week of Hanukkah. 
no thought went into it besides for making sure it is abundantly clear what we are discussing. And that is not a great reason to title an episode. I am a podcast success coach. So make sure to reach out if you or any of your friends need some podcasting help. We are a part of Jewish Coffee House Network. So check out the backlog of this podcast as well as the new episodes and backlogs of the awesome podcasts of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Make sure to join the WhatsApp group. The temporary link is in the show notes. And let me know how you enjoy this episode. Let's get started. Welcome to the Francisca Show. <laughs> I'm so excited to have Amy and Evelyn Gutman, the Gutman sisters. The reason I got in touch with Amy in the first place and hands-on approaches, and now for the first time I get to meet Evelyn, the sister, is I, I was in Manhattan Beach by my sister-in-law for Shabbos. I was talking about this hair covering series that I was working on that came out last Hanukkah. It was a three-part series. Definitely go check it out. And I wanted to have someone, a professional, to talk about the legitimate issues that women have with hair covering and just to validate that there's something more than just beyond. I don't cover my hair because it's just uncomfortable or gives me headaches and give it some validation and some professional or medical <laughs> background to how this works. So as we were doing this fantastic episode that you should definitely go back and check out, we discovered there are so many other sensory issues that come up when it comes to being an Orthodox observant Jew. You just go through the Jewish calendar or through the life cycle of a person, and there are so many things that come up. So we decided to do this. It took only almost a year to get this on the calendar. <laughs> and then we want to do a third part to this hands-on approaches and Francisca Show collaboration, where we'll go into one of our favorite topics, which is intimacy and the sensory issues that come up with intimacy and the relationship between a husband and a wife. So today we are focusing on Jewish sensory. Welcome to the show, Amy and Evelyn Gutman. Please introduce yourselves briefly. I know you host your own podcast, so feel free to add that in. The mic's yours. First of all, thank you so much for having us again. It's great to be here together. And we want to just give you some feedback on that podcast about the hair covering. It was phenomenal. We were sharing it with our community. They were so appreciative of the other parts as well. So definitely check that out. And you may change, Francisca. So we get emails now. I should definitely forward them to you where people are saying how they use those techniques and it's really helping them. So the work that you're doing through your show is changing lives. I just want to give you that update and thank, thank you. you. For, and and for, for me, myself, this has also that episode transformed how I feel about hair covering f physically. <laughs> I'm able to tolerate a lot m more hours in a row of shadels and falls. So thank you for that. I really appreciate That's amazing. it. That's amazing. That's amazing. So just to give you a little background, go ahead. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Evelyn and I am partners with my sister, Amy, and we have a company, Hands On Ochi Rehab, where we provide services for children and consult with adults who have developmental delays, anxiety, sensory issues. We also have a company, Hands Off Approaches, where we work on educating professionals on how to get more education and work with their own clients. And sometimes many of the professionals are also parents themselves. So we're able to help them guide and help their families as well. And then we're very, very excited about our nonprofit, which is the Hope Foundation, which is Hands On Parent Empowerment, where we're looking to prevent anxiety 
and social emotional delays in children because there are so many things that you can do to help prevent certain things early on from becoming an issue. So we're very active folks. We're therapists, we're consultants for organizations. And the reason why we are doing podcasts and out there in the world and social media is to provide education and awareness. So we do have our own podcast. It's called Quiet the Noise. We also have a membership program for parents and for educators, as well as weekly talks that we do for the community every single week with, we are very proud we've not skipped one week through all that we've been through in order to answer questions live. By doing this podcast, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to share some more information. So let's get into it. Okay, so when I said give us some more information about who you are, I meant a little bit more personal information. What Ah, (laughs) on this podcast we hear we hear from so many different types of Jews, and it's nice to know what type of Jew are you. Give us a little bit of your religious background, perhaps. If there was a journey, feel free to add that in just to give us context. So Amy, would you like to go first? So, okay. So I will definitely start. I always suffered with integration issues as a young child. I'm kind of a very bright, a smart person. I didn't have any kind of academic issues or any kind of emotional issues. I grew up in a family that is very loving and supportive. My parents are from Europe. They always were able to compensate for my needs. My sister is my witness that everything bothered me from the chicken touching the rice to me having to go out in the rain or having a water park experience. Everything frightened me and I was overwhelmed. But I was very smart and I was able to compensate and not show the world how much the struggle actually was. But it got to a point where I realized when I was in high school that as much compensation as my mother and father were giving me and providing me and as much support as my sister was giving me in the family and the outside world, if I were to get married, I would be struggling. And internally, I was suffering inside. I felt things very, very intensely and emotionally. And in my research, I realized that I didn't have really a psychological issue. It's more a physiological issue. And I went to study occupational therapy school. Now, I actually started working on Wall Street and I traded commodities. I was a manager for a hedge fund and I did a dual bachelor's where I became an occupational therapist, the youngest in my class, and I healed myself. And there was a huge transformation for me because my entire life transformed. After 9-11, when my life was spared, which is a story all on its own, which we just had the anniversary for, I realized that the work that I was doing with children and families after Wall Street hours was more fulfilling for me in the long run. And I jumped in and devoted myself fully to doing this. And I'm so grateful for that because my quality of life changed, the families have changed, and I'm grateful for every single day being able to do the work that I do. And my sister's story, I did not have sensory issues when I was growing up, but I did live with someone who had sensory And I know what it means for a family to have to adjust. I probably didn't realize it so much when I was younger, but looking back, I see the accommodations my parents made just to make sure that everything was the way it needed to be. And I think that's something that a lot of people now, we talk a little bit more openly about it, but I don't think at that time it was something that was out there. So I remember situations where we would go to a, a store and we would have to try clothing on and it would be really uncomfortable for my sister and how we didn't do certain things because it would be uncomfortable. So for me, I think it's always been in my mind and I also have a background in finance. I'm an accountant and I was going for the CPA and then I realized I was not being fulfilled and I'm not happy. So I went back and I went into OT school. And for me, OT was very eye-opening. I started out with adults and I've always been fascinated by the plasticity of the brain about how we can change. 
not just who we are, our emotions and the way we do things, but the way that we operate, the way we see things, the way we move, the way everything just gets translated into everyday life. And then I started working with kids and they fascinated me even more because there's something about kids that they just want to do everything that they can and there's no stopping them, whatever issues they may have. So I was grateful to be able to go into what I'm doing right now. And I worked in like schools and early intervention centers. And I worked like for years with babies and watched development. And together we decided to pursue doing a different type of work than traditional OT to really try to get to the source of a problem. And I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation today because I think culturally, when we talk about, you know, like Jewish, being religious and being Jewish, there's so many things that as children and adults, we do from a very young age because it's something that's part of our culture and it can really cause a lot of issues sensory-wise from a very young age. And we just do it because we have to do it. And sometimes we make the accommodations, but there are certain simple things or things we don't even realize are issues and we may not address them, that there's so much we can do to help children and adults as they get older with these issues. And I love the point that you mentioned about the religious component, because when we do the mitzvot and right. we're worried, oh, well, my child have an issue, you know, he's not wearing the yarmulke, modesty is an issue, all these different components. Parents and teachers and rabbis sometimes jump to the idea that it's behavior or it's something that we have to worry about their spirituality, but in reality, it's their physiology. And if we don't have this awareness and education out there, then we can create more anxieties for ourselves as the adults in these children's lives. And sometimes the way we treat and behave towards these children can actually create issues with maintaining religious standards, whatever they might be in right. your circle. And, and that's a pity because being Jewish is about feeling it inside of ourselves and having a good feeling about it. And we need to support these physiological components for those who struggle with it. That that's not the issue in doing the mitzvot. That's really why we're so grateful for doing this kind of talk. I want to backtrack a little. You mentioned something about traditional occupational therapy doesn't address the source, whereas what you do does. Can you explain that in a few sentences? So sometimes when we talk about traditional O2 or the way that we used to do it, I would basically, we would go in somewhere, we would see what the symptom is, how is a child presenting, and we would try to give them accommodations or modifications to make things easier. Like handwriting issues, let's right. say. Right. And, and that's all, by the way, that's all very important. We still try to incorporate that because you need to make sure that whoever you're working with can function and do well. But for everything that there is out there, there is usually a root cause. So when someone comes and tells me, I'll start simple, I have handwriting issues, it's usually not the handwriting that's the issue. There's something that is a root cause for why the handwriting is whether it's your spacing of your letters, whether it's how high they are, whether it has to do with how much pressure you put on a pencil, that is coming from a physiological source. And once you address the source of the problem, many times you don't even have to remediate doing handwriting. It just gets better on its own. Just to go a little more in depth with that is that we used to, let's say when we had children who had handwriting issues, the school of thought is you work on those components that you need in order to do handwriting. Work on muscle tone, work on practicing, work on rest. But what we do is we look one step before that. Why did the child not develop a proper grasp to begin with? Why are they having a hard time copying and forming letters? Is it their perception, their sense of space? Are there certain reflexes that are impacting them? And you know, we talk about some podcasts, there are lots of big terms, 
But really when we're born, there are sensory systems, reflexes, and neurochemical components that impact how we develop. And we don't really think about those issues until children are older. And all of a sudden it's handwriting. All of a sudden they have to tolerate bath time. They have to be social. They have to be appropriate. They have to keep their clothes on. They have to not touch themselves in inappropriate places. They need to use different things, not be anxious, be polite. All these stressors that we put, that's when we start worrying it about these things. But really the root cause is stemming sometimes from the way that they developed initially. Like your beautiful baby right now is magic magic if you knew how right now she's learning how to regulate herself she's right now you're busy with pooping and feeding and what else they're diapering and And really what's happening is her entire brain map for how she'll be socially emotionally academically is happening in that first year of life so it's powerful stuff so when we learned this it changed the way we looked at treating individuals and getting to the root cause. And I think that another thing just to mention is a lot of the things that we deal with that are issues, when you really look, dig deep, you're seeing that there are a lot of quality of life issues that are associated to things. So the head rain may not be good, but if you look closely at that child, they may be struggling with root issues that affect the quality of their life. So it's great to have a great head rain, but we really need to address those issues a little bit more directly because that's the long-lasting effects that we want for them later on when they have to have a family, a relationship, have a job, and function to the best of their ability. Give me an example of what I could be doing now to ensure that socially, and what are some basic things for anyone who has a newborn right now? And you could, l'chatrila, uh-huh. to begin with, do things right. So we only have a couple of moments <laughs> with you. We have a full course on this as part of our nonprofit and part of our organization as well. It's called Baby on Track, and we're going to be releasing it again. And we can tell you a couple of things quickly that you might be thinking to do, and we're going to make sure you don't do it. The most important point is when you're a new mother or maybe even a second time, you looked at the CDC milestones, and they're supposed to be walking and talking and babbling and all that. What we look is how are they moving? How are they getting around? A lot of parents don't realize that the world that we live in creates many, many environmental components that will actually detract from typical development for emotional stability. What do I mean? Screens. Screens. That's number one. That's right. We have a screen time article that has over 5 million views. It's been a research basis. It was written in 2017. It's still getting traction. Please check it out. We'll give you a link for the podcast so that people can view it. Until the age of two, there should be no screen time for children. If you were ever in my home and I have a new baby, until the age of two, they do not get a phone. They don't look at pictures. They don't look at iPads, nothing. In fact, my son, when he was- We're going to get to our topic. (laughs) Okay. When we were celebrating celebrating my two-year-old's birthday, my son goes to me. He's like, I'm so excited. I'm like, what are you so happy about? He's like, she gets to see a screen. And that really impacts how brain development happens. A couple of quick things just to tell you, because I know that this is of real interest. Don't put your child into sitting. Allow them to get into sitting on their own. And Um, and I want to add to that something that's out there environmentally, also not to use too many containers. There are so many great devices that are out there that we use for our babies, and there's nothing wrong in using some of them. But if you're using too many and you don't enable a baby to lay flat and get out of, like, you know, in that fetal position that they're at and really, really use their body and make contact with the floor, 
that could prevent them from getting through certain positions they need to and different transitional movements they need so that they can get into sitting on their own. And that impacts social emotional development. Because I want to also mention that when you're doing these movements, it is the physical part of your body along with the regulation that's happening, which is managing their emotions through what you're doing by holding your baby and regulating yourself with your baby through touch, through movements that they're making that is enabling them to tap into what those emotions are. They don't know what it means to be happy, sad. They know to cry for their needs. So what they're able to get from what you're giving them through your touch, through your smile, through your speech, through putting them on the floor and and letting them consolidate everything that's developing, that's what shapes the map of their world for that social development later on. And it's happening right from the time that they're born until they start moving and scurrying away. (laughs) And another quick tip is even swings, for example. A lot of parents don't realize that until the age of three months, swings are okay. After three months, get rid of those swings. If you're using an outside source to calm and regulate your child at the point that they're able to do it on their own, you're actually limiting their ability to regulate themselves when they're older. So who would imagine three months we're talking, six weeks, eight months is when reading and writing begin. So there's so much magic happening in babies. And again, you're right. This could be all cool. (laughs) Everything could be its own thing. And you have a lot of resources out there. Moving on. First things first. Let's talk about clothing. And we're excluding hair covering today because you can go and listen to that other podcast. So we'll talk about tzitzes, yarmulkes, or kippahs, and stockings. So elbows can be an issue as well. First off, yes. So that's something else that we can, you know, kind of help. Okay. This is Amy. (laughs) Let's get straight into it. So first of all, when we're talking about yarmulkes or kippahs for boys, one of the hardest things for them might actually be even before that gets on is the haircut. So I just want to talk about that first. So for a lot of children, the hair cutting in general and nail cutting is hard. But when we're kind of pressurizing our little ones that at the age of three, they all of a sudden have to get the haircut, that could be sometimes a little bit too premature for them. So we did speak about some components about hair desensitization in the podcast that we did about hair coverings. But I do want to mention that this is a very, very critical piece for your child's development. If your child has not had their haircut, which is sometimes a tradition, some Hasidic or communities that they don't cut the hair until the age of three. This is the first experience. That child has a 100% awareness of what's going on. So trying to pretend, putting them in front of a video and not telling them about it, not a good idea if you think that they're going to be fearful. So they're, they're definitely, it's not like, you know, they're eight months old and they're not going to have that memory. They will remember that experience. Our suggestion is for those who have pressure to get their children have their hair cuts for the party, the upshare at the time that they're three is to try and make arrangements with a barber before the actual party, do majority of the cutting then, or maybe just do one or two snips at the party and then have a barber take the child to a barber who's sensitive to the needs of a child during the party and then coming back. The emotional trauma that can be happening is something that we have had children respond to and share with us in therapy when they were nine, 11, 14. So this is not something that children are not picking up on the cues. It's definitely something that they are picking up on. Don't avoid it. Is this for everybody? Do you know that your kid's going to have this? Yeah. So I was actually going to say that when it comes to the haircutting, there there are certain things you will know beforehand. Usually these children have a hard time maybe with you washing their hair or even brushing their hair. They may even have other tactile sensitivities, but it's 
which you can tell whether it was through diapering or having sensitivities to certain textures of clothing or socks. And it may be on their head as well. You usually have this indication. And I also want to tell parents to trust their gut. You know when your child is going to be a little bit anxious about it. And by not validating your child and by just trying to do it, whatever you can to just make it happen, that causes even more anticipatory anxiety in that child before the actual event. So you usually do know that your child may have an issue. And I would recommend also, like you said a little bit beforehand, play and pretend that you're cutting the hair. That will give you an indication that your child is also having an issue. So you can plan accordingly because it doesn't have to be such a traumatizing event. Because remember, you're cutting the hair once, you have to keep cutting the hair all the time. So they will associate that negative experience every single time that they have to cut their hair. And in all communities, there's always a barber who you can work with. You can kind of, you know, speak to them before. I know that for my son, he was hypersensitive about transitions in general. So I just didn't want him to have that huge overwhelm at the party. And I interviewed a couple of them and I found one. And to this day, he goes there. He's like, you know, in high school and they talk about cars and sports and, you know, they live it up. But his his first experience, because if you haven't cut your hair before three, that child sometimes even thinks, oh, what is this about? A little bit more than a child has been getting regular haircuts, especially for those kiddos who have transitioning issues right. in general, not just with haircuts, in just transitioning in general. Let's go to Yamakas. All right. So Amy, here again. So when it comes to the Kipa, we have a couple of recommendations and suggestions. And sometimes this is something that we know is common sense, but parents sometimes forget about this. If you are suspicious that your child may have a hard time keeping the Kipa on, the number one rule we always say is don't put that pressure on there. A child who has never had anything on their head the same way that they've never had other experiences, this is an adjustment for them. Now, I want to talk about, first of all, how early you should start with a child who you think might be fearful of it. Typically, we say about four months, three to four months before the three-year-old mark when that's the expectation that they'll wear the yarmulke or kippah. At the same time, if you are suspicious that your child may have a more heightened sensitivity, nothing wrong in starting with it earlier. The first rule of thumb we would recommend is to actually put it on a doll buy a doll and have the child put the kippa on. And if you're putting it on with bobby pins nowadays, they have lots of different ways of doing it. They have the bobby pins in the yarmulke, out of the yarmulke. See what the child is going to perceive that the doll will have a better experience. Remember, we're dealing with two and a half year olds. So they're not going to be verbal and say, you know, when you stick it here, it bothers me. When you do it here, watch and see what a child does. Children are very smart and they know how to compensate for themselves and to show that to our parents. I was also going to mention this to Evelyn here that you should take the time beforehand as well to experiment with different types of kippahs and textures and materials if you can. Your child will also let you know, and you can do it with the doll as well, and then they put it on themselves. Sometimes we want to make the size exactly the way we think that it needs to be for their head. But if your child is more comfortable with a little bit of a bigger one and you're, they're able to put a clip to keep it on, or they want a little bit of a smaller one, if you can be make that accommodation just to get the adjustment there. Those are other factors that can make a huge difference for when they actually have to put the kippah on, giving that exposure. Because sometimes for some children, having it a little tighter on their head gives them that feedback and input that makes it more comfortable. And for some kids, when it slides or they, it moves, that in and of itself triggers them because they have that tactile sensitivity. And in the same vein that we spoke about it when we spoke about hair covering, doing the physiological desensitization on children is just as important. Right. 
making sure to massage them, giving them deep, deep pressure. Sometimes, and I know it seems strange, actually scratching their heads, making sure to give them good, good scratching feedback is a great way to get them prepared. And for other children, like my sister mentioned, you may even want to have a really, really tight bathing cap, bathing suit cap that they put on their head. And then you do the massage on them so that they feel the restriction while they're getting that feedback. And that's a great way to get them prepared that once it comes off and they have to put on that little kippa or that big kippa, they at least have some desensitization in the area. I, I want to just mention just in general, when we're talking about sense of touch and tolerating touch, we talk about different textures and we talk about discriminating between different things. But before that happens developmentally, you need to be able to tolerate touch itself. That's the first thing. And in fact, if you look at a baby, a baby has more of that withdrawal response first. They don't let, they like deep touch, but they're very sensitive to touch. So a lot of our young kids who are two and a half, three, they're still at that point. So we have to be very mindful that it's the touch. It's not sometimes just the yamaka. It could be any touch that's going to be sensitive for them. So the more we know about how they respond to touch, the better we can apply any of these solutions that we're giving you to make that cater to that specific child. And one of the biggest, best ways to do that is to do overall body compressions or give them like a good roll on the floor with their full body. So that way they're not isolating only their head, only whatever it is that they're bothered by, which, you know, if we're talking about other parts of the body that we'll be talking about later on in this episode. So using a whole body experience to give that physical contact can help make that touch sensitivity a little bit less. Let's go to tzitzis. So tzitzis is something that can also be, it's another layer that they have to wear. And because of the fringes at the end of the tzitzis, it can really be very, very stimulating for someone who is hypersensitive to touch. Anytime, first you have the putting it on. And then anytime that they move, especially if they're a child who doesn't like to have their shirt sucked in, which many of kids don't like, every time they move, they feel it. And depending on what body part it's going to be touching, it could be very, very triggering for them. So a good suggestion to do is also to try to desensitize their body if they need that before they put it on and giving them the control, by the way, of putting it on themselves. And perhaps even making sure that if they're going to put a pair of pants or something on top of it, giving them that pressure to make sure that it's not moving and stabilizing it somehow can do wonders for not having that sensation as they're putting it on. And one of the things to consider is sensitivities can go both ways. It could be that they need extra, extra soft, and it could be that they actually need the extra tight, starchy ones that they want to feel that's on there. So parents who run and say, oh, I'm going to get the softest this as possible, you, if you're not getting a good experience, try and get an actually firm one. Sometimes having that feeling of where the ends are, where the fringes will begin, will actually help them as well. And I do want to talk about the connection of potty training with regard to census wearing. I think that's a critical piece, especially yeah. in the community, because in some communities, there's a big pressure that by three, they should be completely potty trained or not. Like they I, even connect it sometimes, parents. You need to be potty trained in order to put your tzitzis on. And, and they make that connection. There's a lot, a lot of pressure, particularly for kids who have sensory issues. So I want to talk about this in the way in twofold. First of all, what the parents can think about and also what they can do for their child. As we know, when we're dealing with potty training, pressure is the worst thing. Nobody wants to be pressured in general in life. How much more so when we're dealing with such a sensitive area? 
And the thing to remember is at this age of three, if there's going to be a party or you're going to go to a school and they're going to learn the olive bays or whatever it might be, it's okay to put on the tzitzis and they're not potty trained. And I want this message to be screamed loud and loud, like everywhere, because so many questions come into our weekly talk about this question and itself. I have a big party. My child's turning three. They're not potty trained. I can't put the tzitzis on. You can put on the tzitzis on for a day. Even if they're take take the diaper off, if you feel like it's not appropriate for them to say the blessing, it, they'll be okay. If it's an hour in school, two hours in school, it'll be all right. And I want this message to be out there because there's so many emotional contexts that are connected to when we train our children for urination and defecation. There are so many components. It's not worth that pressure and the long lasting effects. Now, when it does come to training children, if you're having a real issue, recognize sometimes that the same way we talk about giving input to our other parts of our organs, sometimes these children need input in those areas. And that could mean that they just need to get feedback. And what's interesting is for boys who have this mitzvah, many parents don't know that urination can be a very hypersensitive situation for them. Think about it. Their whole life, they've been going to the bathroom in a diaper where they're having something against their body parts. And when you're trying to have them to go on their own, there's air that's coming there. There's a complete lack of proprioception while they're going to the bathroom. So not to, you know, make light of this, but sometimes we recommend that parents should desensitize their children by allowing them to use a towel to actually urinate. And once they're starting to urinate on their own through the towel, slowly remove the towel or get a thinner towel and then use a pull-off and then there's exactly i also want to just mention one more thing besides that some children also have heightened lack of sensitivity in terms of when they need to go to the bathroom because they're dealing with other sensory issues so if you're really really sensitive to touch and you're not picking up on the signals that are coming from your internal body like when i need to go to the bathroom particularly kids who are more anxious and have transitioning issues and we make that time three of putting on tzitzis and toilet training such a strong developmental milestone which it is but for some kids that can be terrifying so even if they have the awareness it's stunted a little bit they're not able to pick up on the cues so it puts a lot of anxiety on them where it shouldn't be maybe just doing it separately or as amy said putting on the tzitzis and worrying about the toilet training later because they may not be ready physiologically to do that consistently. And I think for some kids, it's even worse to get it done, but they're really not fully toilet trained. And then they have regressions because it was too much and too much pressure. So you're dealing with the emotional impact of that as well for these children. And how much more so from the parents, the rebbies and the teachers, right. they're feeding off that anxiety from you. You're nervous about getting your child into daycare or getting that, you know, that they should have that cute little choo-choo train for the three hour party. They know this. You don't have to tell us that. They know when you're all calm. You're like, it's okay, sweetie. It's okay. But meanwhile, you're feeling that way. They're sensing that. They're in a heightened sense. In general, these children are sponges. They pick up on everything. They know if your eyebrow moved like a millimeter up because (laughs) you didn't approve of something. (sighs) I also think they feel it. I think kids who have sensory issues, they just have a heightened sensitivity. They're more empathetic and they feel things. And they feed off of that energy. Most kids want to please and do well. So they're not only dealing with themselves, they're dealing with how you're feeling. And that's a lot for a child to process and take in. 
Okay, let's move on to girls now. They need okay. to cover up <laughs> a very common topic in, on this podcast, or at least in the group. Okay, so first of all, we, we have two parts of this, okay? So we have those who are wearing pants and in their circles, they're, they're required to wear skirts at a certain age, whether that's at three, five, nine, you know, we're not rabbis. We, <laughs> we, we hear the gamut of when the expectation is there. And for some, they can continue to wear pants. For someone who has a tactile sensitivity, pants is a wonderful thing. They right. love jeans. They love leggings. That's what they want to live in. Growing up, I had clothing. My sister can attest to it that I would come home from school in my stiff uniform pleated skirt and my shirt, and I would strip down and put on my fuzzy, yummy robe or my pajama pants, and I was a happy pea. And before I knew how to do this for myself, my mother, again, she's an amazing woman. I'm taking a breath because I'm thinking about what she used to do. If I got a new skirt, she would go and launder it for many, many times. She would right. take to the dry cleaner so it would get nice and soft and I could tolerate it. She would take those t-shirts and those blouses and put them in the washing machine for a very long time so I can get comfortable with that. And when we talk about our little kids or even our older kids who sometimes have been denied allowing themselves to express their discomfort, right? We know those parents who they're in charge of the clothing and then finally the child's seven or eight and they're fighting with their mother. I don't want to wear this skirt. I don't want to wear this. I want to wear leggings with socks. And the schools right. are sending home letters. You're not allowed to wear leggings. You have to wear tights. Or the issue of a child who their knees have to be covered. So you're imagine you're sensitive. You're wearing knee socks. So you have that point where it comes up to your knee and then your skirt is coming up to the point where it's about touching. So you not only have the bottom part of your leg that's bothering you every time you move, your skirt is touching your skin. You don't know which one it is. These are the kids whose socks are usually down to the bottom of their ankle, or their their skirts are a little bit up, and they're struggling. Everything that, and then let's talk about the tight, the buttons that you have to have. There's no oh, elastic on your on your thing. You have like a regular seam with a button and a zipper that could also be extremely triggering for our girls. And on top of it, not only are they struggling with this, but their teachers, their principals are giving them like abuse that they're schlumpy, they're slacking off, they're not sanua. So now they have this emotional context that's coming and connected to their modesty issues. Right. So I just want to, I want to just put it out there that we've heard it, we've seen it all. I'm sure there are folks out there who are adults that are connecting to this, especially if you're You've grown and your children are going to more religious schools than what you grew up and you have to change your standards. I know that that was a case for me as well. And the open toe shoes were gone and I had to start wearing walker stockings and things like that. These factors impact our girls at a young age, but they don't always get a chance to express it. So if you're starting to see your child at a young age, not wanting socks on, needing those tight, tight socks, like right. they don't even want, like if it's too, too loose, forget about it. And then the other kids who, if it's too tight, they need to have it loose. I mean, it can go together. Or the girls who maybe sometimes need the clothes to be tighter so they feel it. And it's an immodest, it becomes immodest. It's sometimes because they actually need something on their body to help organize themselves so they can pay attention and feel good. And telling them to wear something looser is so disorganizing. It's so irking for them because they don't feel and have a good sense of their body. And every time something touches them, it stimulates them. So I think it's important to be able to be mindful of that and make accommodations to help these girls because it affects also their social, their self-esteem and their image of themselves. Clothing is a very big part. Our hair, we also have like like some places religiously you have to put your hair on a ponytail. It has to be away from your face. It has to be tight. That could be really, really hard for some girls having a ponytail 
holder in their hair. And if they make it a little bit loose, they're viewed as immodest or they're being behavioral. So the reason we went through this entire description and we intentionally are doing this because if the word is spread out there and people are listening to this and you're in the education system where you're viewing these children and you're starting to think like, oh, they're trying to hike up their skirt. Sometimes it's not about hiking it up. It's just when they have to wear that skirt at that point where they're touching it right over their knee, for them, it's torture. And when I say this and I express this because I went through this myself, the tactile sensitivities are so intense. You cannot concentrate. You cannot look. You cannot listen. You cannot even be respectful. You become impulsive. Your emotional centers are triggered. These children are not trying to be behavioral. It is truly uncomfortable. It's like me telling you, stop breathing, please. You know, I don't want you to breathe. It, it would kill you. That's what's happening. And that's the feeling and sensation. So I'm just speaking from personal experience having had this. And I just want to put it out there that if you are in the educational system and you're, or you're in a community and you're seeing a parent struggling with this with their child, judgments are the farthest thing that should be in your mind. You have to understand that with these children, there are, could be so many other factors at play. And I think it's important to validate what they're feeling. Not to say, oh, you have to do this because this is what the rule is. They may still have to wear the uniform and they may have to cover their knees. I think it's important to validate and say, I know this makes you uncomfortable and ask them what exactly they're feeling. You may not always have the best solution for them, but validation is key because sometimes we're denying the way that they feel. And if we deny that, we're repressing a lot of other things that they may also be feeling about the way they look, about the way they feel, about the way people view them. And I think that's even more damaging than the sneeze part of just having to cover your knees or cover your elbows. And another thing is when it comes to dressing our girls, we know that it's always right, right. when the bus is coming, right? When everything is happening and they're feeling that intensity from us as parents, like, like we got to get out of here. We got to put the stockings on, you know, mm -hmm. and they're like, I, you're killing me. And you're like, okay, it's, it, you know, we're going to validate you. Yes, I'm killing you. It's very bad, but we got to get the stockings on. That, that's too much. You know, what do you think they walk to school with? They don't walk with a good feeling and they have stockings on and they're still uncomfortable and they come home and they rip those clothing off. So we have to think about that emotional context of what's happening in the whole experience of religion, of modesty and what it means. Because modesty is something that really is an internal factor. And again, maybe I'm going a little bit beyond what we want to talk about today. But when we talk about modesty, if you want to have like that positive feeling, and I know when I speak to my daughters, it's not about the rules. It's about that internal feeling. But when the rules are connecting in a way to our children that is impacting their physiology, they can connect that positive side of what it means to be that princess of Hashem. They're just busy with what it is that it makes them feel. It is so uncomfortable to be there. It's such a struggle to exist in that way that either they deny it, they, re they resent it, or they just fall apart from it. And right. that's what we're going to do now is give some tips on how we can help. I assume that's where you'd like yes, us to speak. Okay. So first of all, it's the same theory if you see that we have. You always want to prepare the area that's at right. risk or having discomfort. So if it's by the knees, if it's the toes, if it's stocking, deep pressure and deep touch is your friend. I want to also recommend that you can sometimes buy these exfoliating gloves that they sell that you can use in the shower and sometimes putting them on and rubbing the area that you want to put the clothing on can be very, very helpful as long as it's very deep when you're doing it to desensitize that specific area. And my suggestion is any of these tips that we're recommending do way before right. the time that you need them. 
So when they come home from school after the bath, talk about the parts that are bothering them and try these methods out at that point. Now let's talk about how do we get them to adjust? So great, we're giving them deep pressure, we're doing the exfoliating. How do we get those stockings on without them squirming? So this is very important for us to understand that textures can be changed. That's the one thing you have control over. In the same way my mother would wash my skirts and my t-shirts, if the issue is the actual texture, wash those stockings a couple of times. Make sure you spend money on that expensive pair that's yummy and soft. Don't sprint on this. Like, yes, they might rip, they might tear, but this is going to be so important, especially when we're dealing with the rules of modesty and we're trying to expose our little ones to a good feeling connecting to that. The second thing is that you want to make sure that when you're doing the actual putting on, you as a parent are being very firm in doing it or have them do it themselves. Exactly. That is going to help them. Great point. If it's a little one, you have to put it on. Make sure you're doing it firmly and afterwards, full body hugs. And while you're giving them the full body hug, rub the part that they're bothered by. Is it the thigh? Is it the toe? Is it the leg? Giving full body hug and rubbing them. They'll be screamingly perhaps at times. And then while you're holding them, you're going to say, okay, sweetie, we're rubbing your legs. So they have attention to it. Again, never deny the areas. People try to trick people. They put iPhones in the kids' hands. I see it. I see it in all these stores, you know, where they're trying on clothing and they're trying to distract the child. That's great in the store, but when it's going to be the holiday time, that kid's not going to wear that outfit that you spend money on right. because they're annoyed and there's no iPhone to go to. So don't fool yourself. I, don't fool that. I also want to recommend that we have a certain way that we think we have to get dressed in the morning. You need to put this on first. You have to put that on next. If for your child, they need to get dressed with their upper body first because it gives them feedback and it makes them feel good, then let them control the way they get dressed. You can have much more of a struggle if you're going to do it according to the way that you think it needs to be. When you give them control, they feel much better about it and it'll be faster. You're not going to have that whole thing. Why do most kids, why do they avoid it? They're not getting dressers because they know it doesn't make them feel good. So why not? This is one thing that has to get done in the morning. You want to work I don't know any parent who sent their kids to the bus naked. <laughs> no, but we put it on them. We argue right. with that. You're going to be late. And the stress of it, imagine having a kid who has a little bit more control and they know what they like. So let them get dressed that way. They want to put their socks on first. They want it last. Accommodate. That is what you need to do. We can always work on these things at a later date, but let them have that control. And I do want to mention something about rewards and treats. I always hear it from parents. Well, I promise them that, you know, if they get dressed by themselves in like under five minutes, they're going to get a treat. <laughs> this is not something that's going to avoid the situation. So yeah, it's great for that short term, but that's why in the middle of the day, those girls might be hiking up their skirts or pulling down their skirts to be lying on their hips. So you're helping maybe your kids get out of the door for now, but you don't know what's happening at school. So just really try and respect what they're sharing and come up with different ways to really work on these things outside of that period of time. I yeah. have one more thing just to mention for older kids who are teenagers and they are able now to pick their own clothing. And sometimes as parents, we have expectations of what we want them to wear and how they should look. I think that we should be able to give them a little bit of control of what they're choosing. So if they pick a little bit something that's looser and you don't think it's put together enough, Try to accommodate and let them have at least several outfits that they choose, or even if you can give them the control, that will help them with the modesty piece. Because if they're going to a store that has modest clothes, if they're going towards something that's not your style, 
at least they're being modest and they're developing that connection to modesty, respecting the way they feel with their own body. And that's how the love of modesty comes in. Because for anyone who's adult out there, we all develop our styles and go through sometimes a transition of maybe not being so modest and then becoming modest because we see that there's opportunity to get the clothing that we feel comfortable in. And what a gift it is to give our young girls that opportunity when they're young and developing those choices. And I just want to honor again my mother because I remember that when I was struggling with this, if she found an article of clothing that I liked or I wore, she went and bought another one in a couple of more sizes. And okay, granted, I may not have been the fashionista of the time because my style was the same, but I was comfortable. She recognized what I needed because this was pure, pure torture for me. When my sister talks about that store called Wonderland, they my mother used to pull me out. They knew us there. They knew us. <laughs> they, she used to pull me out in the middle of the week to go right. shopping for holiday clothing because everything was such a bother. And she knew she needed a full day for that. Please be patient. Your children are feeding off you. And I know it's a struggle. And especially in today's generation where we do have, thank God, so many choices for modesty. There's just too much sometimes out there. But respect that if they, your child is not handling it, it's okay to make adjustments and not be up to par in the fashion for that season. And mm-hmm. I'm just smiling to everything you're saying because you're mentioning older girls or teenagers. My daughters are closer to babies than teenagers, but they absolutely need to choose what they're wearing and put it on in the order right. they need to put it on. And if it's not matching socks, it's not. And I'm happy that I live somewhere where I don't feel like I even have to explain this to any other parents. I don't know how parents in Flatbush do it, but I'm assuming the standards in Lakewood might be a little bit more. But who knows? If I lived there, I would know. And Shabbos clothing, not Shabbos clothing. I am not. I, I just can't be mocked on that because today it's sensory, tomorrow it's not sensory. So I can tell you from living in a community where, you know, you know, I live in Manhattan Beach and it's a, it's a very easy community, you know, like if my daughter wants to go in her weekday pink skirt with her red socks and her blue Shabbos top, it's okay. But in some of these communities, I, I live in one where we maybe be a little bit judged. I live like a bar park. And I think sometimes about the wool coats that the kids have to wear on Shabbos because you have a Shabbos coat. And for some kids, it's torture. It's torture. Like they want to wear their hot pink down coat for Shabbos and they should be allowed to. They don't go with the coat sometimes, some of these kids, because it's just I'd rather not wear the coat. And, and the stigma is really something that you can't really change because that's cultural and environmental. But as parents, we have to try and figure out what we can do to accommodate them. So I actually had this situation with a wool coat with a family from Williamsburg, very insular community. She had matching coats. And I said to her, go and buy matching coats of the one that this one child likes. I said, change that. I said, if it's so important that all the girls have the same coat, have that one choose what the style will be. And then you're okay in your culture and your community. And maybe it's a backhanded way of doing it because sometimes people feel like, oh, we got to stick to the rules and guidelines. Well, we speak to schools all the time and we are so encouraged by the girls' schools and the yeshivas who are finally allowing girls to wear t-shirts right, in younger grades instead of shirts. I grew up in a very religious school where from first grade on, you had to wear a tight, stiff, starched blue shirt. And that was torture for me. And I'm so grateful that there are so many more. There's a trend now to recognize that if we want our girls to love modesty, we've got to accommodate what they're feeling and what they might be going. And even for those five in the class of 20, they are just as important when it comes to the rules of modesty as the rest of us. So we got to work for them, not against them. 
And yeah. I think the more education we get out there and the more we talk about it, it's nice to see that people are opening up their minds to this and making these accounts. I think there is more that's happening, which is very, very gratifying to see it here. Excellent. Okay, moving on to the holidays. Let's start with okay. Rosh Hashanah. And, and let's try to really be brief here. I know we can okay. go in depth into each thing, but we don't have the time, the luxury of time. Okay, so let's let's combine some of the holidays. Right. Let's do Rosh Hashanah and Purim. So when we talk about Rosh Hashanah and Purim, we're talking about chauffeur blowing. And of course, when we hear the hummer, the grogger. So right. recognizing that our children might be very, very frightened by the noise. So the thing is, lots of kids have these sensitivities. They're maybe very hypersensitive to sound. And you probably know this about your kid. Also, it can start from a very young age. The ones who are afraid of the vacuum cleaner, the mixer, or just are hypersensitive to someone walking into a room. You can make the accommodation for some of these kids to not even have to struggle to be there. That's something that is really appreciated, not just for the kid, but for the parent, as well as for people probably who are in the shul, because the kids are not going to be crying and running around. You want to make that accommodation. You can also make the accommodation of giving them something where they are away from where the chauffeur is, or maybe putting something to, to protect their ears so that they're not having to listen to those sounds which are triggering for them. Remember, sound can have a very strong emotional reaction. Most kids will cry, become behavioral, start running around, and it's not because of them being behavioral. They need to do something to minimize and counterbalance the sounds that they're hearing. And usually another sensory system, another part of their body takes over to make them feel comfortable. It is the one system that goes directly to our brain. There's no translation. So you'll have impulsive children. There's no way to control that child as well. It's very, very intense. Also try and use some noise blocking headphones. That's something that can also be used because lots of children will not allow you to put earpods in and allow them to just that that. Firm. You can't use that really on, on your kid. Oh, put oh, bits, yeah. the, the earmuffs on their ear. Earmuffs or something or a hat or whatever it is. Or hold your child while covering their ears during chauffeur time. Give us holidays. Pesach. I'm assuming that's eating or forceful eating. So we have a big change in diet. We have all the issues that we have when it comes to tolerating our sudarim, where we have to have the patience of sitting there, listening to people chewing matzah and eating, having large families. There's something called misophonia. We speak a lot about that, the sensitivity to noise, but we have to deal with the food changes, the singing. singing. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. Okay, so what do we do about that? So first of all, when it comes to Pesach, please, please, please remember that your child's dietary needs are always going to be accommodated. We are so grateful that we're doing this for almost 25 years. And in the time that we've been doing this work, there are so many ways to accommodate. So if your child needs bread, there are different kinds of cakes and cookies and even fake bread that's out there. Plan ahead so that way you're not struggling. For a child who has feeding issues and you're having that issue because of sensory needs, identify what it is that they need. Do they need the crunchy? Do they need the soft? If they're not able to tolerate it, figure out what foods to get way before the holiday comes. For our clients, we always talk about it around firm time. We figure it's about one month before. We send them a little reminder. If you have any food sensitivities, try and make those plans now as to what you're going to do for each of the meals. Another thing to remember is that with Pesach, the, the entire schedule is off. Right. So if your schedule is off and your feeding is off, you're taking apart two of the components that help with regulation, sleep and nutrition. So sleep sometimes is hard for us to do with the trips that we're having, with the sedarum that we're having. 
So make sure that nutrition is a key, key component that you can still keep up to date. I wanted to also just mention, regardless of the holiday, I find that whether it's Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, Pesach, there's a time factor that's also involved in terms of the length of how long the holiday is, how long the meals are, the expectations of going to shul for some people. The schedule is completely off. So you really want to try to stick for your children to the schedule that they have and try to make those accommodations and be mindful of the fact that when they have their times, when they may get tired. So you may choose to not make them sit at the table so late and feed them a little bit earlier so that they're there for Kiddush and just the challah, and then you let them go. Most of the time I find like we're pretty accommodating. Kids will come, they'll go, but in some families, if you have company, they have certain structures, they have certain expectations. And looking at your child and seeing that they're still a child, they're five, they're seven, they're eight, they're 10, maybe even the 15-year-old, some kids can't sit that long. It's just too much for them. Some kids, we have some 15-year-olds we're working with who can't sit at the table because the sound of everybody chewing annoys them. So they sit in the kitchen. Be mindful of that and make those accommodations and discuss it with your children beforehand. And you're the one in the control. Make sure that they're rested, that you know what they need and try to fit it in. It really helps not just them, but it helps you as well to have a more enjoyable chag. The extra stuff, I was going to bring up black hats or anything that's modest in the summer when it's very hot. I would like to talk about that because I think that this is an issue that, first of all, adult women are also struggling with, and especially with our young teenagers and our young ones who are, I, I can speak for both ends, like the boys and the girls. This is an issue, okay? The boys who are required to wear shirts for yeshiva or long pants. The jacket and, and the hat in the summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah jacket, the hat, the girls who have to wear the t-shirts and necklines. Let's talk about necklines. Yeah, we didn't even talk, talk about that. that. The desensitization is a key part, but what do we do about the heat factor? Now we touched on this a little bit when we we're talking about the wig wearing. One of the factors is that when you are, in, by the way, I just want to also talk on the other end that sometimes I'm in wonder. I remember growing up and I see the Hasidic woman wearing full-fledged, everything covered, stiff clothing, layers. They would have their shirt on, they would have their vest, and then they would have a jacket on. And they seem so cool and, and in control. Now, our temperature is very much directed to our regulation in general. And this is a pure scientific fact. If you're feeling hot, you can actually visualize yourself being in a cold place and your actual body temperature will shift and change. Science has proven that. We've done lots of studies on this. Now, it's nice to be talking this in a theoretical way, but how do we teach our little ones or our young girls or our young boys who have to wear the hat and the jacket that they can actually shift the way that they are? Now, again, if it's 100 degrees outside and you get into that blast of air, you're going to feel it. But you can work on practices to kind of shift your physiological state. And this is powerful, powerful work. And I can tell you myself, my own journey, as I mentioned as my son and my children are going to more religious schools than I did, I have changed my rules of modesty and my dress. And I've been wearing, you know, longer skirts and those stockings in the summer at times, not stockings, but higher socks than I'm used to because I, when I have no socks, you know, I was like an open toe kind of girl. And I remember working on my mindset of thinking I'm in the Arctic, I'm with the polar bears. I am sipping some cold margaritas right now and I am feeling free and airy. Now, it sometimes can get a little bit repetitive, but after a while, if you do this kind of work, I know it seems so counterintuitive that's in your mind, but it's not really that you're negating the fact that you're hot and have the clothing. 
but for the heat factor, you will feel a physiological shift. Something else to remember is to take deep breaths. Before you enter any area that's going to be hot or you're entering outside, take a big breath and as you open that door, exhale out. When you exhale, you're actually doing some condensation in your body and you're creating your temperature to get a little bit lower. And that can be helpful as well, as well in getting to that transitional state. Like right before you put on that jacket or that hat, take that deep breath out. When you have to get in outside, you know, do what it is. Now, there's a reason why our necks are a big point and we sweat there. If you're able to, as a woman, get a ponytail, shades, all that, something to do. For our girls, encouraging them to get used to being in a ponytail. Sometimes ponytails are such a double-edged sword. Right. Because some kids hate having their head in pony, but they can't stand being in the heat. So teaching them the power of where our temperature conduction comes through, which is through our wrists, our through our necks, and sometimes for some of us, our foreheads and our palms. So just teaching how, you know, keeping something cold in our hands is something that can or, help. Or even being hydrated and making sure that we drink the things that keep our body in homeostasis and keep our temperature more regulated, which is drinking and eating well, that can also help. And for a lot of kids, they forget to do that or even adults. So being mindful of that, maybe drinking as you're getting dressed, making sure that you have that when you go out or you take a water bottle if you can with you, it's also going to help them during this time. And remember the loop. If you're uncomfortable and you're hot and you're uncomfortable, you're just going to get hotter. It's not like it's going to go away and negate itself. So this really does begin with the mind where we're kind of thinking, okay, I am in heat. Don't deny it. I am hot. I am uncomfortable. I'm going to shift the way that I'm feeling by visualizing myself in a certain place. And, and the visualization also changes your perspective and the way that you sometimes are able to get to that mindset and think about what it is that you're wearing or how you're feeling. You're able to create those shifts, your body, either through your body, what we were talking about, or even in your mind, you somehow find a place to be where you're more comfortable having to wear the clothing that you are in the summertime. And in general, by the way, temperature sensitivities are something that we should respect in our children. Like if we have a child who doesn't want to put on their coat in the wintertime because they're hot, don't think that you know better. Maybe they are hot. Right. You know what I mean? Like some children who are in we, sensory loop all the time really are warm. And when you tell them, oh, but it's 32 degrees outside. Well, you know what? For that child, they might be feeling like it's 54 degrees. So I, let's I respect we that. Have kids that we work with and they're not wearing a coat. And like when the parents sees them take a coat finally, like, oh my gosh, they wore a coat. They put a jacket on. That means that temperature got regulated. It's a huge thing because we all feel things very, very differently. Yeah, like it's so interesting you mentioned that because parents sometimes say, you know, oh, I'm so concerned he doesn't wear a coat. And we're like, I know you think it's an issue of getting catching a cold. We're more concerned about why doesn't he know that it's 32 degrees outside? Right. You know, that's the thing. And we have to we have to think about that perspective instead of forcing ourselves to put on their coats or or doing what they're doing. And that child who doesn't know about the coat, when it's hot, they are extremely hot. So right. if it's 90 degrees outside for them, it's 110. Right. So let's try and acknowledge that and, and be respectful of it. One more topic that we'll address that's a great segue to our next follow-up episode, the mikvah, because I know in Hasidish communities, boys start young, and in all communities, boys and men are eventually introduced to the mikvah as well as women eventually. 
So let's talk about what the issues may be and what are some tools. So first of all, I do want to address that the components for Mikvah for Women I'd like to do in the closed forum that we right. spoke about. But we will talk about here today about for the men and the components there because it's a little bit different with what's happening within their minds and their expectations. Let's just talk about the issues that and those who do go when we go or the Hasidic community or other communities. There are two parts. Number one, there's the idea of having to go underwater, right? Having to do it publicly, and also having to do it in certain situations where they don't feel comfortable with just being in the presence of that water. And what I mean, go ahead. Besides the fact that they're dealing with water, which is a certain texture, and temperature control as well, going into, you know, you can't control what the temperature of the water is going to be over there, how you're going to feel when you're coming in and out. So you put all those components in. Some people are feeling more of some, but basically those can all be factors from anyone who has to go to the mikvah. So if you're a son or if you're a father and you're taking your child to the mikvah initially, it's very important. We think that this is important on so many levels because of safety as well. They may not have awareness for some children that they're actually going into a public area exposing themselves. So you want to make sure that if you are taking our advice always to parents who have children who may have transitioning issues or may not be as developed in their social awareness, right, is to make sure that the fathers are going with them. We know that some of the yeshivas and camps take the boys sometimes initially. We would also recommend that if you're in that kind of culture or in that group or community, make sure that if you are sending your child to a yeshiva or to a camp, that you share with them that the day that they're doing it, you'd like to be present. You'll come up, you'll make sure that you're present just for that first experience. And that's just number one that I want to just mention. But I want to say it's kind of nice when you do sometimes have certain camps that do it, or they will maybe have private times where they allow people to have certain times that the boys can go on their own. And that's something if, you know, if they're they're a little bit older being introduced, that is also very respectful and being mindful of, boys and their privacy and what their needs are. So that's a nice thing to also try to put out there for a camp to do. And also just to mention that when you're dealing with that as a parent, you can also request that. So let's say you live very far, you're out in California, your son's in Camp York, you can request that. And that's something that camps should be willing to accommodate, especially if you're suspicious that they're not going to be aware of how they'll feel about that. The issue with the boys particularly is that in going to the mikvah, there's a lot of dynamics that happen there. And for a child who's not cognitively or socially at the right point, this will be damaging to them in ways that may come out later on in life. So this is a critical piece. The same way we spoke about the cutting of the hair, when it comes to going to the mikvah, it's a very emotional situation for some boys. For others, it's not an issue at all. Now, let's talk about the other piece about water and having to follow the rule of, you know, putting your head fully under the water. So that transitional piece is, again, something that a lot of times yeshivas or the fathers don't even know that their son right. has an issue with that. But they've done bath time. They've gone swimming. They're always above their head. So some suggest- Or they don't swim or they don't even bother going underneath this when you don't really know it so much. So let's just talk about what's going on in that boy. First of all, the anxiety of having to do it in front of other people. And secondly, having to do it just, just to, to do, do it. it. And they're not exactly in their swimming trunks, okay? So they they have the awareness, perhaps, that they are naked and they are not comfortable and they don't want to be seen. Our recommendation, again, it's a lot of common sense, but really as parents out there, if you are suspicious that your son is having these difficulties, make sure to make arrangements to go to a private pool and desensitize them. 
practice, practice, practice beforehand. And if it's not possible and you're not able to, and that child is still freaking out or upset or nervous or not able to dunk, our suggestion is that you make sure to make arrangements with that school or that camp or that area to try and accommodate them until you get to that point. It's really, there are, by the way, professionals in our communities and in some of the communities, there are men who will train these boys on how to go and to feel comfortable and secure. And that's something that we really encourage you spend that time, especially if it's what the norm is in that community or if it's required. You know, that's something that's a lot of a lot of men need to do before the high holy days that are coming up, the holidays or shutting your kipper. Some of them have to do it every single Friday. Right. It's a real pressure, it's a concern, you know, it can affect Shadduchim and marriage and, and all these components. So spending that time early on addressing it is very, very important. And we can go into a whole topic about that. As far as for the women, it's a little bit of a different situation. And we're going to talk about that in, in further depth, hopefully, when we do our closed talk that we spoke about. So introducing the closed talk that we're going to do, we're going to schedule a closed Zoom meeting where people, anyone is going to be welcome to join, right? We're not closing this off for women only, are we? So I'm not sure about that. I have to speak to you about that because when I was preparing the information about it, I actually thought that we should probably do part one with just women and then part two with both so that spouses can understand what women are going through. And we can speak about the men and their intimacy issues. So there are two parts I feel that's happening to this. So we've got to go offline and, and discuss and that. really hash okay. that out. But okay. that's going to be closed so people can participate and ask questions potentially anonymously do not have to show your face or name but also it will not be available on the podcast after because of context is that what we're doing exactly we want to we want to be sensitive to whatever questions come up that we can answer fully and honestly and we don't want that if it's being to a particular person situation context sometimes you take a snapshot out of a podcast and it kind of can get spread around and it's not really what we're intending there and also to be respectful to answer questions fully through the anonymous form. So we will create a link for people to register so they can get notifications for that. And I, yes. I want to thank you so much for doing this. This is so helpful on so many levels. Thanks. So thank you. Oh, we appreciate it. We appreciate and again, it. Let's do it. We, we want to thank you for this platform and for the voice that you're giving to such important topics in yes. the Jewish world and things that you discuss. And I've been listening in on your podcast. It's amazing. It's really, really fantastic. And we appreciate you so much, as well as your music. Thank but you. Yeah. Your, your voice on so many levels is just one of our Thank you so much. And ooh, it's just so fantastic getting feedback like this from the guests on this podcast. Make sure to reach out if you have a story to share. Make sure to join the WhatsApp discussion group. We love hearing from you. And if you need podcasting help with launching, marketing, monetizing, do not hesitate to reach out. Listen to the backlog of this podcast. Check out the other podcasts on jewishcoffeehouse.com, such as Intimate Judaism, Orthodox Conundrum, Chochmat Nashim, and Let My People Eat. See you next time.